turn to Acts chapter 6, a book that shows the living out of the principles of Scripture, not by perfect people, uh, by people who have failings and need to depend upon grace every much as we do. Uh, Acts 6, we uh, looked at the first two verses last week, and I want to finish off this section. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word. We just bless you that you have given to us a light for our path that covers every aspect of our Christian living. I pray that as I preach this word that uh, we may... uh, treasure your word, that it might become uh, something that is quickened in our hearts by faith, that you would anoint my lips and enable me to faithfully preach it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. may be seated. One of the things that's been an unfortunate tendency in some circles is to reduce the faith to the intellect. We feel comfortable with our doctrines all wrapped up and we enjoy teaching them and, and uh, reading about them. And I don't want to uh, have you get me wrong on this because we value doctrine very much here. In fact, last week we said that the word was one of the highest priorities in the church. But what I want to point out is that If we've got good theology, it will always result in action. Just like a dead faith is uh, uh, not a good thing, a dead theology is not a good thing. It always needs to result in action. And we're going to be diving into the subject of deacons and mercy ministries today, and uh, we're not going to be able to cover everything. And so right off the bat, I would like to recommend uh, some books by George Grant, Uh, In the Shadow of Plenty is one of his books that is uh, outstanding. Another one is, uh, um, yeah, what is it? In the Shadow of Plenty, Bringing in the Sheaves. Uh, Just look up his books relating to Mercy Ministries. There's a lot of stuff out there that is not so good. In fact, there's even some Reformed books that have good things in them but uh, have some socialism mixed in. But his books are solid, just really rock solid. And he has pointed out that the Reformed faith is an incredibly rich depository of not only a theology of mercy ministries, but of practice of that. Uh, And uh, you don't have to read any modern uh, Reformed writings. Uh, You can go back over the last 2,000 years and you will see that there is just all kinds of writings and practice you can look to. Uh, We consider ourselves Augustinians and Augustine and the... um, 
uh, 300s and in the 400s uh, AD. Uh, he's very well known for some of the rich theological treatises that he wrote, but what many people don't realize is that northern Africa back in those years was transformed because of the mercy ministries and the networks that he set in place in 13 cities in North Africa. Um, most people are familiar with um, John Wycliffe, his reforming activities on theology, translation of the scripture, but a lot of people don't realize that he had set up uh, networks of care for the poor that have lasted even up into the last uh, century. And we're not talking about socialistic care for the poor. We're talking about a biblical care that got them on their feet and got them productive. Uh, Jan Hus was burned at the stake for his reformed theology, but not many people realize that he mobilized an army of workers uh, in mercy ministries to minister to Europe when Europe was being hit with disaster after disaster. Everybody else was bailing out, and he said, no, the church has got to be in there. Uh, most people remember George Whitfield for the incredible preaching that he had during the uh, First Great Awakening, but he was just passionately driven with the need to minister to the poor, setting up orphanages. Uh, he started a hospital as well, and the list can go on and on. And the first half of this chapter, Acts 6, 1 through 7, is really a challenge to our own church to have a living theology that produces action. So you might think of it as living mercy. And we're going to pick up where we left off last week at verse 3. And the first thing that I want you to notice here is that it's not enough to have godly leaders and to have godly members. Uh, they had those uh, back in those days, but we also need to have an effective organization of the leadership and of the ministries. Who were the people who were leading the ministries at this point? Well, we saw last week, it was the apostles. If you take a look at chapter 4, verse 35, it speaks about all of the stuff that they had been bringing for Mercy Ministries, and it says they laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each one as anyone had need. Those are the only leaders that were available to organize these mercy ministries, and they were being run ragged when you understand all that was going on. And then if you look at uh, verse 37 of the same chapter, it, talks, it says, having land, they sold it, they brought the money, they laid it at the apostles' feet. You see the same emphasis in chapter 5. Now, nobody's going to question that these apostles were godly men, that they were spirit-filled men, but we saw last week that they were going so fast in every direction with so many responsibilities that they were not doing all of their ministries very well. And chapter 6, verse 1 makes that very, very clear. Here are two major problems in the church that were completely overlooked by the apostles. And I can assure you, if the apostles could overlook major problems in the church, we can overlook those problems as well. And so it really is essential that we have the kind of division of labor, that we have the kind of organization that is important. That's why the multiplication of leaders within a church as a church grows is so important. Now, <clears throat> uh, I see this section here as being a transition within the church, very much like the huge transition that happened with Moses in Exodus chapter 18. He was wearing himself out, and the people were getting worn out, and Jethro comes along and he says, man, this is not a good way of organizing things. You've got to make some changes in terms of the structure and the organization of the leadership. 
And it's encouraging to me, the apostles struggled just like uh, we do, but they were willing to make changes when they saw that. And so back to chapter 6, I find this section here, we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 6, very interesting, the interplay between the leadership and the membership. The apostles didn't decide, okay, we've got to have... um, Uh, more leaders here, and let's see, who's a friend of mine that we can put into this position? Somebody I can really work well with. Uh, If they had the, uh, if anybody had the authority, they could have had the authority to do that, but instead, what they do is they go to the people, and they recognize the need for the wisdom of the multitude in this whole process. Uh, The apostles make it very clear, they want to have people in position who have already been engaged in mercy ministries, but they make it clear that um, it's the people themselves who, you know, are probably the best at discovering who is going to be best at that at the grassroots level. And so let's begin at verse 3. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation. Uh, Verse 5 says, And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, and it mentions six others that they chose. Verse 6, Whom they set before the apostles. Now that is as clear a set of statements against episcopacy as you can possibly get. On the episcopal form of church government, the people do not have any say whatsoever in who will be the leader there. Um, The bishop appoints people and he can say, you know, I think the pastor that's in this church needs to go to another church and they can just, you don't have much say in who is going to be uh, in charge uh, or who is going to be leading you. Uh, in, the, uh, in the ministry, but in this chapter we see that the people choose who's going to lead them in their ministries. And I think part of the difference is because we see an every person ministry as being so important. And if you guys are the ones who are doing the work of the ministry, it makes sense that you're going to be the ones who want to say, and are going to have a choice in who's going to lead you in your ministries. And so he uh, looks to the people, but this is not a pure democracy either. It's a constitutional republic, and the only leaders that can be elected are the people that the uh, apostles here say meet the biblical qualifications that they have laid down. Verse 3 again, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation. So first of all, the seven men, they lay out how many leaders that they're going to have. Then they lay down the qualifications. Seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, whom we may appoint over this business. And so it's clear that the apostles delegate the authority and they delegate the ministry to the new deacons. And so there's a clear chain of command from the session, from the apostles, to the the deacons and then to the people, but it's the people who choose the officers. And so with that as a general overview of what's going on, um, and it fits Presbyterianism, I think, very, very well, Uh, I want to go just verse by verse, uh, phrase by phrase through this section, and I really think these are revolutionary words in terms of what changes were going to begin to occur in the book of Acts. Verse 3, therefore, the raising up of these deacons was because of the last phrase in verse 2 where he says, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. The burdens of the ministry were necessitating 
a division of labor. Now, it's not an absolute division of labor because we're going to be seeing later on in the book of Acts that the apostles occasionally are engaged in mercy ministries. But in terms of leadership, that is something that somebody else is going to be uh, running with. Uh, It was um, uh, a relinquishing of some of their work so that they could be more effective in what God has especially gifted them for. Therefore, brethren, I want you to notice that the apostles did not lord it over the congregation. Uh, They see themselves as fellow brothers, and they appeal to the congregation rather than dictating to the congregation. Uh, Verse 5 says, the saying pleased the whole multitude, but if it hadn't pleased the multitude, I guess they could have decided not to choose any, any, any of those officers. The people are the ones who pick or at least the, the, the brethren, the heads of households were. And the point that I learned from this is that leadership is not something that can be dictated. You earn the respect of people. You earn the love and the trust of the people. And so the humility of these apostles, I think, is something that is a model for us. It says, therefore, brethren, seek out from among you. Now, those words, for me, are a major challenge to some of the professionalism that has crept into the church in the 20th uh, century. Uh, First of all, they indicate that the leadership of Mercy Ministries is best accomplished by people who are homegrown rather than imported from outside. And uh, sometimes churches will decide, man, we need somebody that's just... uh, an expert in this area who can come in and do the work of the ministry for us. But if you think about it, who are the people in the book of Acts before this and after this who are primarily engaging in the work of the ministry? It's the common citizens of the kingdom, isn't it? These people are uh, very much involved in that. And if that's true, leadership is going to very naturally filter to the top. But if the people were not engaged in mercy ministries, it doesn't matter how many experts you import in, what's going to happen is they're still going to have the attitude, let George do it. You know, oh yeah, great, we've got an expert. He can do the work for us, right? And so what we see in Acts 2 and what we see in Acts 4, and we see it all the way through this book, is that the people take on the ministry and a church that throws its money at a problem through a hired professional I think is missing the boat. The solution to both the leadership as well as the ministry is you, the people. Now the second correction that those words make to the modern church is that God expects the church believers to be carrying its own weight on charity. Not to be looking to unbelievers, not to be looking to the state, and to me it is an utter bankruptcy of the church when I have run across so many churches that refuse to be involved in mercy ministries because they say the state's doing that. That's the job of the welfare state. And God says, no, it's not. This is something that needs to be raised up from you, the people. This is a church function. Now, it's also a family function, and we're going to be seeing later on in the book, that there is a a very careful delineation, what's in the family and what's in the church. But it is something that is from you, the believers. It is not a state function. Verse 3 goes on and it says, seven men. Now the word for men is males. It's not the general term that you get, anthropos, that could be person, uh, but it's uh, the males. And this was a strict qualification that was laid down within uh, Judaism and it was... um, Uh, put into, into, I don't know what the word would be, but in 1 Timothy 3, this was a rule that was laid out for the church uh, for all time, that it had to be males who were 
in office. Now, this does not mean that women were not involved in mercy ministries. They were very involved in mercy ministries, and a very key and prominent example of that would be Tabitha in chapter 9 of Acts. Uh, wonderful lady uh, uh, that was involved in mercy ministries. But the point is, it's the leadership, the organization. Now, some people in the PCA have said, you know, there really shouldn't be a problem with deaconesses, even though the PCA doesn't allow it. But there shouldn't be a problem with deaconesses because they're not leaders, they're servants. And they say even the word deacon means servant, right? Well, remember what we saw last week, everybody's a servant. Uh, Ministers are servants of the word, right? They're deacons of the word. We're ministers, that's what the word minister means. And so it's servant leadership, but uh, deacons definitely do lead. And um, so here it mentions the men. Now, just one side note that may or may not be significant in this chapter, but I, I do find interesting that the apostles appointed deacons long before they appointed elders in the church. And uh, I find that rather curious. It's not until chapter 11 that any elders are mentioned as being in the church. Now, the apostles have been doing the work of deacon and have been doing the work of elders as well. But to me, it it emphasizes how important the office of deacons really was in the early church. But why the number seven? Some people have um, tried to figure out what that could be. Maybe there was something symbolic in the number uh, seven. I think it was just the fact that's how many deacons that they needed. Because commentators are mystified by this. They say there's no evidence amongst Judaism. I mean, some of the Judaistic um, synagogues had three deacons. Some had more. So you can't point to that. You can't point to later church history. And uh, I think it's simply because that's how many deacons that they felt were needed at this point. And it's an important point of polity that the session appoints the number that is needed. So even though it's the the congregation who chooses who they're going to nominate... Um, the elders or the session would say, here's how many deacons we're going to need for the next um, uh, year. And so in this situation, when the apostles said choose seven, the congregation can't say, nah, I think we need a lot of deacons. We're going to choose 25 deacons or 50 deacons. Uh, And so uh, in the PCA Book of Church Order, you find this laid out like this, where there is a careful interplay between what the congregation does, what the session does, and you're never going to find a situation in larger churches where you've got 15 more deacons than you need, uh, and they're twiddling their thumbs with nothing to do. No, there's, a, there's an interplay, and the, uh, the, the leadership uh, were the ones who gave the initiative on that. Now, he goes on, he says, men of good reputation. This is the first of three general categories that 1 Timothy chapter 3 then amplifies upon. Each of those three categories, it gives several subcategories for, and here it just mentions the three major categories. The first one is that the people that they pick need to have the respect of the whole congregation. Uh, They need to have a reputation for uh, the people to have a, a love and a respect for these men that they can follow. Uh, Just as an example, even on a a business type of a situation, a person that you hate, you know, he uh, he could maybe supervise some things, but he sure couldn't lead. Nobody would want to follow a person that they hated. And so this aspect of having a reputation, being uh, uh, respectable within the congregation, I think is important. And this is one of the reasons why in uh, some churches, 
Uh, they have, uh, every four years, people come up for election. Pastor and everybody can come up for election. Some have term uh, limits. I don't think that's biblical at all. So there's no reason why a person could not serve the rest of his life uh, in the position of deacon, elder, or as pastor, but he needs to have uh, the respect of the congregation, uh, that they are, uh, they're behind him. He needs to feel that they're behind him. And then 1 Timothy amplifies on that first characteristic by saying, okay, before a person can be a deacon, he needs to be tested in his ministry. He needs to show that he's able to do that job before he can... Um, before he can be ordained. He needs to be dignified, honest, not overusing wine, generous, etc. So that's the first one. He's got the respect of the people. The next overarching qualification is that he needs to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, I think this is another correction uh, to modern notions about this office. It shows that the apostles thought a whole lot more about the office of deacon than many moderns do, It shows that without the Spirit, we are not going to be able to engage in the kinds of ministries that will be transformational. It's not just something anybody can be plugged into and say, okay, uh, run with this. I want you to notice here, his condition is not that uh, we need people who have uh, become successful in business, uh, who can do accounting, and especially who give well, uh, you know, and uh, some of those types of things. That might be a shoe-in in some churches, And people might think, well, what else is needed of a deacon? They're just dealing with bodies and money and buildings and things like that, right? Wrong. Uh, These apostles recognized there was something so significant about the office of deacon, they need to be men who are full of the Holy Spirit. And I want to look more in depth at that next time when we get to verse 8, what it means to be full of the Spirit, full of faith, full of power, Uh, Because I think all three of those are absolutely needed to have the kind of mercy ministries that that I long to see here in Omaha. But let me just make three preliminary observations. My first observation is that God does not separate the spiritual from the physical. He has no sacred-secular dichotomy. It takes the Holy Spirit to prosper our work with a building, with the giving up a cup of cold water, our finances, healing, anything else. Uh, It takes the Holy Spirit to do diaconal work in a way that will transform a church or transform a city. It takes the Spirit's insight to help us know, if I give money here, will it actually hurt this person or will it help the person? Um, It takes uh, the Holy Spirit uh, to have the kind of boldness of faith uh, that uh, 1 Timothy 3 says uh, a deacon needs to have. Uh, takes the Holy Spirit and the fullness of the Spirit to enable our work to go beyond what mere talent of an unbeliever can do and into the kind of ministry that only God could receive the glory from. And so there is no sacred secular dichotomy. People who think this is a secular office have totally missed the boat. The second thing that is implied in this need for the Spirit's fullness is that there's a need for a spiritual gifting. I think you don't want to put a person into the office who's not gifted for it because it's going to drive them crazy and it's going to frustrate the people that they're trying to lead, right? Uh, So there need to be leadership skills and either the gift of helps or the gift of service. In my series on the Holy Trinity, I demonstrated how the gift of helps is perhaps the closest to the character and the heart of the Holy Spirit whose name is Helper, right? 
It's probably the closest of any of the gifts that you can get to showing forth what the Spirit is all about. Just as the Holy Spirit delights in pushing Jesus into the limelight and he glorifies Jesus and doesn't want to be put forward himself, those who have the gift of helps, that's their favorite thing, is making other people succeed. In fact, that's what gives them a sense of fulfillment. They feel a little bit uncomfortable if um, uh, they're put into the limelight and everybody's looking at them and they're receiving all kinds of compliments. Now, they do want to uh, feel needed. They do want to feel appreciated but they feel best and they feel the most fulfilled when they have enabled another person to succeed. And to me, this is an absolutely amazing thing. It shows the working of God's Spirit powerfully within their lives. The third observation that I would make is that a person who is full of the Spirit is controlled by the Spirit. We'll look at that more under verse 8, but it definitely deals with character um, uh, qualifications, moral qualifications. So there's the issue of reputation, there's the empowering of the Spirit. Thirdly, there's the need for wisdom. He's he's to be full of the Spirit, he's to be full of wisdom. Why? Well, the more you understand of the incredible pitfalls that churches fall into with Mercy Ministries, the more you realize, man, we need the wisdom of Solomon to be able to do this effectively. Uh, The more times you get ripped off by... uh, uh, th- those professionals, you know, who go around and, and uh, uh, hoodwink you, they're con artists, the more you realize we need God's discernment. The more you realize the potential that these kinds of mercy ministries have for penetrating and overthrowing satanic territories, the more you realize his wisdom's going to have to come uh, to the surface. So it's an incredibly important office, and if it is done well, it's a very demanding office as well. Verse 3 ends by saying, whom we may appoint over this business. Now, the Greek word for business, if you look it up in any dictionary, it means needed or necessity. So again, this highlights, even though the word of God, the preaching of the word is the the high priority, uh, mercy ministries is not an option and the diaconate is not an option. It is an absolute imperative. It is a necessity. Also, once again, notice that the apostles are put in charge of the diaconal ministry by way of delegation, by way of oversight. And if you want the details of that, read the Book of Church Order sometime. Verse 4, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Now, we like to put the, the ministry of the Word as the top priority, but I want you to notice here that prayer is put before the ministry of the Word, and it makes sense. If our preaching is to make any impact upon the congregation, upon those outside the congregation, in our counseling and the other things that we're engaged in, the only way it's going to have an impact is if God prospers that Word. Otherwise, what happens? Satan comes and he snatches the words out of people's minds. And uh, uh, people are hardened to it. They can't see it. It's like there's a blinder on their eyes. And so... Prayer that God would break through, prayer that he would prosper our word has got to be one of the top things in our ministry profile. In fact, you can judge a church based on its prayer meeting. And if you can judge a church based on its prayer meeting, you can judge its leadership based on their prayer meetings. You know, how much are they in the private closet? If if an elder or a deacon or a pastor is too busy to pray, he is too busy, period. This has got to be right up there on the top. 
But then the next part of it is very important as well, that uh, we must be involved in the ministry of the word continually being given to that. Read Ephesians 4, 11 through 13 sometime, and you will see that God gives the officers, uh, the apostles and the teachers and the pastors to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And if they are not effectively bringing the word of God, the whole counsel of God, the people are going to be weak. If the people are weak, the ministry is going to fail. And so everything really is dependent upon solid, solid biblical teaching. Well, that takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of time. And uh, you understand how much effort that goes into the preaching of the Word. It would make you think, well, we can't just ignore it. Well, this is something that is our lifeblood. We need to, like Deuteronomy says, uh, this is not a futile thing for you, for it is your life. God has chosen to sanctify us through the Word. He's chosen to do almost every aspect of His, his ministry through the Word of God. And so uh, these, um, these apostles... Uh, they do not want to be um, distracted from the ministry of the Word, and they are ruthless in cutting aside any of those distractions, no matter how important they were. Verse 5 says, And the saying pleased the whole multitude. Now, I want you to notice here that it's not wrong for the congregation to be pleased with a preacher. Okay, Some people think, oh, that's so, that's so carnal. But they were pleased with the preaching. Now, it's true. The preacher should not be preaching for the people. He should not be pre uh, preaching for their praises or to please them. He needs to be preaching for God's glory. But if the congregation is spirit-filled, they're going to love the Word, aren't they? They're going to be pleased with what God uh, is bringing into their lives. Again, notice that the apostles get a confirmation vote from the congregation. They do not rule with an iron fist. They do not insist on their own way. And the congregation willingly helps, verse 5 says, and they chose. Now, that word chose was used by Plato to refer to the secular elections in the states. So it's talking about elections here. Every officer of the church is elected by the congregation. They are your representatives. You have an inalienable right to be able to choose who will represent you or to unchoose them. And notice who they choose. Every one of these people has Greek names. Now, there were a couple of commentaries who said, because of that, maybe all of these are Hellenists. And other commentaries say, no, that's going too far. You really can't say that because uh, it was very common for Hebrews to have a Hebrew name and a Greek name. In fact, many of the apostles who clearly were Hebrews had Greek names. You can't get more Greek than Philip, right? And so that's going a little bit too far. But I think it says at least this. All of these people were Greek speakers, Okay. And so they were not only able to minister to the Hebrews, they were able to minister to the people who only spoke Greek, to the Hellenists. And to me, this shows such a wonderful sensitivity to the cultural differences that existed within that congregation. It would be like here in Omaha, if we had a congregation where seeking to reach out to Hispanics, making the requirement, every deacon, as one of their requirements, has to be able to speak, not Greek and Hebrew, what is it? English and Spanish. Thank you, Glenn. Uh, that would be an incredible thing, wouldn't it? Uh, and so what they're doing, the majority of the congregation is saying, you know, we're going to go overboard here. We want to make sure that the minority is cared for. And so these officers are going to have to speak both of those languages. To me, it's such a gracious gesture on their part. It says, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Now, why would it require you to be full of faith to be a deacon? 
I think the reason is, in part at least, I think the reason is that there is a dangerous tendency for people who have the gift of helps and the gift of service to become maintenance-oriented and to love the status quo. And faith counteracts that tendency and transforms deacons into people who expect great things from God and attempt great things for Him. Uh, Faith, for example, is needed uh, for uh, deacons to be able to see God's possibilities when everybody else thinks, man, this is an impossible situation. And they're like, okay, if God's structured it this way, what is it that God's wanting us to do? They're looking positively for what God is achieving. They're not being bean counters, you know, who are saying, oh, we can't, and digging in their heels, uh, you know, against any progress that is being made. It takes faith to do that. It's a leadership function. It takes faith when you are faced ministering to a person who has an incurable disease or financial impossibilities or spiritual battles. Faith enables deacons to catch the vision of the session, of the leadership, and even go beyond that vision and doing amazing things uh, with very limited diaconal financial resources, very limited people resources. The goal of the deacon should be so driven by a vision of God and their faith that you're not surprised at all when they want to take this city, you know, for King Jesus. And they've got the plans, you know, to be able to do it. Uh, Mercy Ministry historically has had that kind of a faith. If you look at the last 2,000 years, when it's had an impact in culture, it has been driven with that kind of a faith. And uh, even up into recent years, you look at missionaries like... um, uh, Hugh Goldie and the old Calabar on uh, the, the um, uh, Western, w- West Africa. Just amazing the faith this guy had. And everybody was telling him, oh, don't be involved in culture. That's impossible. You'll never change culture. And he, he was so driven by faith, he says, we must. These are demonic customs. You know, the pro-death uh, uh, infanticide and all of the things that were going on, he said, we've got to be involved in overcoming these types of things. And he was successful despite the opposition of the culture and despite the opposition of fellow missionaries. Uh, he, had a, he had a real faith of what could be done. And when you have that kind of a faith, you're going to get a backlash, right? Leadership backlash. And uh, that's what happened to Stephen. Stephen, because he can't stand still, he's got a faith that is driving him and his mercy ministries catches the attention of other people and uh, they go out to stone him, as we'll see in the next chapter. Philip is mentioned later on in the book and uh, Procurus is mentioned in church history, though not in the New Testament. Uh, Church history tells us that he became the secretary for the Apostle Paul. Later on, he became a pastor of Nicomedia and uh, then later became martyred. So we know a little bit about the first three names. We know absolutely nothing about the next four names that are listed in there. But to me, that teaches us something as well. It shows us that so much of God's work is carried on by unknown, unsung heroes who are quite content to put other people in the spotlight and just be out there serving the Lord. They, they find their pleasure in doing that. And I'm convinced their rewards are going to be great in heaven. And I think that their unsung status is a test of our own motives for ministry. Why am I ministering? Is it just so people will know about me and think how great I am? Why am I ministering? It, 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 do I really have a God-centered focus? Uh, verse 6 shows the ordination of deacons whom they set before the apostles and when they had prayed they laid 
hands on them. Now, you may not uh, realize it, but in reform circles, there's a big debate on how many offices there are in the church. There's uh, the primary ones are the three office that uh, hold that the pastor, elders, and uh, deacons are the three offices. And then the PCA holds to the two office view that there are uh, deacons and elders. And within the eldership, there are two orders, uh, uh, teaching elder and, and ruling elder, but they are two offices. And on some of them, there's not that much difference. Between the OPC three office and the PCA two office, they're very similar. But there's been a movement uh, since the time of uh, Charles Hodge amongst three office people to secularize the diaconate and to secularize the eldership and say they may not be ordained. Okay, It's not an ordained office. It's just a, uh, a lay position that is being fulfilled. And what we say is absolutely no way. This is an ordained office. They represent the Lord. God has put them in place. God has given to them uh, this authority that they stand in. And I think it's very, very important that we not secularize uh, this office. They represent the Lord. Now, verse 7 gives the results. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. This division of labor did not just add workers. That'd be good enough, right? But this multiplied the workers exponentially because now there is a synergy of their efforts to body and soul and it enabled things to take off. You cannot overstate the importance of the office of deacon. Um, the joint work enormously enabled them to advance in their conquest of satanic territory. Now again, this reinforces to me that there is something far different about the diaconal ministry of the early church than what characterizes the diaconal ministry in many modern churches today. Now, there are notable exceptions. I've seen some awesome, incredible uh, mercy ministries and, and diaconates uh, here in America. I think Joe Moorcraft's church is one example. And if you read uh, um, George Grant's book, you'll see examples of how this works in other churches as well. Uh, but the Bible calls for something different than your typical diaconal program, something that's going to make Satan tremble, something that promotes maturity and progress among the poor, something that honors the role of business, something that removes dependency and promotes self-sufficiency. And it's obvious to me Luke wants to make the point there is a cause and effect relationship between these new deacons who are working and the incredible growth of the church. It says, then the word spread. Now that makes sense because now the apostles are freed up to focus on what they do best in the preaching of the word, and the counseling, the exhortation, all of the other ministries of the word. But it also makes sense from another perspective because... These deacons are ministering the word one-on-one -on -one privately as they're engaging in their mercy ministries as well. So it says the word spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Now, it was already multiplying in verse 1, and so we have a compounded multiplying as deacons organize the church in their own effective mercy ministries. And then the last phrase says, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. That means they submitted to the whole counsel of God. Now that's quite something for these priests because uh, the priests for the most part uh, followed the Sadducean doctrines and they had a lot of doctrinal changes to make once they became Christians. 
But I think they were putting two and two together. They had at one point walked into the temple when Christ was crucified and there's this earthquake and from top to bottom, not from bottom to top, you know, that curtain is torn asunder. They're seeing into the Holy of Holies. They see something's going on. And so many of them uh, became Christians at this point. And very encouraging to me. Here's what Derek Carlson says. Even the hardest hearts and the most intelligent minds are not beyond the power of God's grace. I like that juxtaposition of those two. Even the hardest hearts and the most intelligent minds are not beyond the power of God's grace. We must remember that it is the word and spirit that convert people, not our wisdom. And so I think that this passage just gives us some hints in a small compass that uh, the state can never effectively compete with a church that is on fire for the Lord in these ways. Uh, a bureaucracy in Washington, D.C. cannot give the life-giving mercy that the church is supposed to give, nor can a church bureaucracy give that either. Even though there is a, an organization of these mercy ministries, they're not merely programs. They are the life-giving work of the Holy Spirit working through frail people, manifesting His glory to the delight and to the joy of, uh, uh, of the congregation and those outside the congregation. And so it's my prayer, it's my desire that we would be a church that manifests over time an increasing evidence of living mercy. May he receive the glory. Thank you, Father, for your word. We need your Holy Spirit if we are to be able to achieve this because we recognize how far short we fall of the standard of your word. But Father, uh, even though in ourselves we cannot accomplish this, we recognize that we can do all things through Christ uh, who strengthens us. And I pray that you would strengthen us with all might, that you would raise up in your perfect timing uh, the kind of diaconate uh, that would make a huge difference inside and outside of this congregation. And to you be all the honor, praise, and glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.